Let's open our Bible to John chapter 8. We've been walking through a series and just examining different encounters that Jesus has with various people. And today will be an encounter that's a very famous, well-known encounter, Jesus and the adulterous woman. I preface for you that this passage, John 8, uh, 2, verse 11, may be in double brackets in your Bible or may have a footnote. Some of the early manuscripts and our Greek, Greek manuscripts don't have this particular passage. And some say it came in through oral tradition and others uh, debate where this particular passage should land, whether it should be right here in John or maybe some would put it in Luke. As we go through this passage, we'll find that there is no contradiction to Scripture. In fact, the Scriptures affirm the theological principles that we'll find in this passage. But it was very well known uh, through oral tradition, and it made its way in the canon of Scripture. One of the famous lines from this passage that we're about to see from Christians and non-Christians is this line, this verse, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Have you heard that one? Many people know that, even those who don't identify as knowing the Scripture at all. And so today I'm going to read through this passage, and then we're simply going to walk through it verse by verse, line by line, to see how the Lord speaks to you and me today. We'll begin here in John 8, 2. We're told early in the morning he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At once, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one, the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What a fascinating passage. A fascinating uh, uh, event here in Scripture. We begin by being told that Jesus is an early riser. We see this all throughout the Gospels. He, he would get up before the crack of dawn. He would either go away to, to pray or he would go out and do ministry. And here he is early in the morning teaching. I'm thankful that our, our Lord is a teacher. He's a teaching God. He wants his people to know him and to know his word. In Luke 21, 37 through 38, we're told this, connected to this incident. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged in the mount of called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. We give a glimpse here that Jesus would just sleep across the valley in the Mount of Olives. And this implied that he would sleep in the open air. Imagine God of the universe stepping down from his throne. He has no palace. He has no hotel. He's sleeping on the ground. And he does that for his people. He's sleeping closely to Jerusalem, 
just a stone's throw away, and as soon as it's light, he goes over to the temple. What a great demonstration of humility. Our God is a teaching God. And you can sit down with the Word of God and study from Jesus any time of day. But imagine meeting him in the morning. You sit down with your cup of coffee and your Bible and you say, Lord, here I am. What do you have to teach me today? I want to meet with you in the morning or any time of day. 8.2 eight, uh, tells us early in the morning he came again. This would be, he's been doing this a number of times on this visit to the temple. This would be where the place where people come to worship. And all the people came to him. This could be all kinds of people. And he sat down. And when a rabbi sits down, it means classes in session. That he's going to teach. They would sit down to teach. And the students would just sit down around him. We don't know in this particular verse how many people this is. It could be hundreds or thousands. We don't know. But I would imagine there's a large group of people who got up early in the morning to walk to the temple to see if Jesus would be there to teach. We already know from the Gospels that he taught like nobody's business. That he, he would talk, teach with great authority. And people said, is this a new teaching? He's teaching about God. And he has authority to teach about God because he is God. And no one can speak with greater authority about God than God himself. Jesus speaks and teaches with his words. With the very words that come out of his mouth is what he uses to teach. And even today, Jesus is still teaching with his word. The Bible is the word of God. And when you read the Bible and study the Bible, you're being taught by Jesus about life or about this world, about how things work, and about how you can live a life of holiness to please him and honor him in everything you think, say, and do. Jesus is eager to teach, and here he begins. He wastes no time by meeting in the morning. He is the master teacher, and if you ever want to study teaching, to be a better teacher, study the teachings of Jesus, how he teaches his methods of teaching, and you will be a better teacher for it. So here we have the rabbi has sat down, classes in session, and there's one thing you never ever do when the rabbi starts to teach. You never interrupt his teaching. It would be a great sign of disrespect to interrupt his teaching for any reason. If you have something to say to the rabbi, you would come and sit down and wait till his lessons are over, and then you would get up and pull him aside, but you would never interrupt him while he's teaching. So what do the scribes and the Pharisees do? You can kind of see where this is going. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in his midst. Now this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. We don't know if she was just caught that morning and dragged to Jesus. Some say she's very likely she could have been caught during the night. And it was a setup. It was a trap for her. They needed bait to lure Jesus into this trap. And they could have held her in their custody all night long, just waiting for Jesus to show up at the temple so they can get him. I'm imagining this scene where people are seated around Jesus. There's a hush among the crowd, and all you can hear is the voice of Jesus carrying out over the people as he teaches. And then there's this loud commotion as they drag in this woman who was caught in such a sinful act. It would be an embarrassment to her completely humiliating. She'd be terrified for her life because they're about to put her on a, a capital offense trial where she could be stoned to death. And just uh, the work of the devil here would be to interrupt the teaching of God as he's teaching his people. And friends, you have to know, I think we would all agree if we think about it, that the devil wants no one to hear the word of God. 
It makes sense that they would come to him while he's in the middle of teaching and the devil would use them to distract people, to discourage them, to get them to not hear the words. That the devil can't keep you from a place where the word of God is being preached. And then if you go, he will try to keep you from being focused on the words that are being preached. Think about, are you distracted now? What is distracting your heart and mind? Are you tired? Are you trying to, is the preacher keeping you awake? But so many times I've gone into worship services to listen, and I've been so distracted by the things of this world. And I've got to pray, Lord, help me stay focused to your word being proclaimed. And not only does the devil discourage you from being in a place where the word is being taught regularly, not only does he distract you, but we see here in this passage that the devil wants to discredit the messenger. Because the devil knows if he can discredit the messenger of the word of God, he can get people to doubt what is being spoken. We see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. And the religious leaders right here, right now, want to bring this scene before the people to try to discredit Jesus Christ so the people will stop following him and stop listening to him. Because it is driving them crazy that Jesus is performing these miracles. He's teaching with great authority. People are following him and they're believing him. They're putting their trust in Jesus. And the religious leaders can't handle it. Listen to how they try to discredit him. This is just one scene found in John chapter 8. If you want to truly try to discredit someone, you call them a Samaritan. But if you really want to double dog dare them, so to speak, you call them a demon-possessed person. Here in John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered him, speaking to Jesus, and they say, are we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And as if that wasn't enough, and you have a demon. Jesus is not a Samaritan. They know that. But by saying he's a Samaritan, what they're saying is to the people, he's not one of us. You shouldn't listen to him. He's an outsider. He belongs to that that breed of people. They call them half-breeds. That's not my word. That's their word. And they try to discredit him by his nationality or his identity. And then they say he is a demon-possessed man because they don't want people to listen to him. Jesus gives his response. He, He shows them a very... That that's ridiculous, that he is not a demon-possessed man. And then in John 8, 40, 52, they respond and say, The Jews said to him, We know that you have a demon. Even though it's not true, they just keep backing it up over and over and over again, hoping that the people will believe them because they want to discredit Jesus so that they can discredit his word. And now we see at the beginning of John 8 this attempt to do the very same thing by setting a trap for Jesus. And they hope that by bringing in this woman, they could give Jesus a dilemma. And a dilemma is having two unfavorable choices. And either one they think will work out in their favor, the scribes and the Pharisees. Look what they do here. They planned this. They hadn't been planning this all night. They brought a woman who was caught in in adultery and placed her in their midst. They interrupted Jesus' teaching time. They threw this woman by herself right in front of everybody so they could stare at her. And now Jesus has to stop his teaching and address the issue. The scribes uh, were the lawyers of the day. They would interpret the law. The Pharisees were a religious party and it was their job to apply the law. So here we have the interpreters and the the appliers of the law who come together because they want to make a slam dunk case against Jesus in case he wants to debate them. 
Now this woman offers no defense. She doesn't say anything at this point. But the leaders want Jesus so badly, they're willing to do all that they can to ruin this woman's reputation. They care nothing about this woman. They don't show her any compassion. They don't show her any mercy, which is important because then we're going to see the Lord do that at the very end. He will treat her with great respect and with mercy and compassion. Verse 4 says this, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And what they're saying is that she is guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. If you're a judge, this is an open and shut case. All the evidence you need has already been prepared and by witnesses and statements. This case should not take long. They're asking Jesus to render a verdict right there on the spot. And then they continue in verse 5. Now, the law, Moses in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And in the Greek language, the what do you say, the you is emphatic. It would be what do you say? Making it very clear that the emphasis is on Jesus. All eyes and attention are focused on Jesus. And a question that many scholars have been asking, and you may be wondering right now, is where's the man? Because the law says the man should be brought forward for punishment as well. Why is there only a woman? That's why there's just more and more evidence that this is just a setup. That this woman was set up to try to find someone to bring in against Jesus to try to trap him. The you is emphatic. What is Jesus going to do? Verse 6, they say this. The writer tells us they said this to test him. That they might have some charge to bring against him. They want Jesus dead and gone. And they're trying to find accusation after accusation after accusation to get rid of Jesus. This word to test, it means to, to test, to prove, to try, to examine, to watch closely. And that's what they've been doing his entire ministry is watching him closely to try to find any evidence they can to get rid of Jesus. They want to put him on trial. He's the one on trial here, not the woman. And how he responds will determine how they respond to him. Jesus is presented with this dilemma. And again, I said it's making two choices that are both unfavorable. If he says, woman, you go free, then he's violated the law of God and of Moses. But if he stones the woman or says she should be stoned, then he's no friend of sinners. So what will Jesus do? They think they have him right where they want him. They think that perhaps Jesus will be so filled with worry and anxiety, biting his nails, wondering, how do I get out of this situation? But look what Jesus does. He does something that no one sees coming. He does the unthinkable. He doesn't even answer them right away. Look at what he does. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. <laughs> what? What kind of response is that? Why would Jesus have this accusation of this woman come in? She's absolutely terrified and humiliated. They're screaming at him to make a decision. And his response is to do whatever he wants to do. Well, there's many uh, speculations about what Jesus is doing here. We don't know what he's writing down. It is interesting. One commentator said that if this is the day of rest, that everyone knows that even to write two letters would be a violation of the law on the day of rest. But there's an exception. The law permits someone to write in the dirt. Isn't that fascinating? So Jesus squats down and he, he writes his finger in the dirt. 
And I think what he's doing there is showing them that he knows the law better than they do. And here what they're doing is bringing him this woman and they're telling him what the law is. He wrote the law. He is the law. He is the word of God. And so Jesus is almost mocking them saying, you you think I don't know the law? I know that today could be the resting day. We don't know, day of rest. And the only thing that's permitted as far as writing is to write in the dirt. And as they watch him, he's showing them that he knows the law better than they do. Some say he wasn't writing anything. Others say he was writing maybe their, their names and their sins. This could be a reference to Exodus 31, 18, where he could be writing the Ten Commandments. We don't know, but Exodus 31, 18 states, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the, ten, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger. And here he is with his finger writing in the dirt. Or it could be a reference to Jeremiah 17, 13. Many commentators like this, if we're just going to speculate. Jeremiah 17, 13 say, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. What could Jesus be doing here? He could be writing their names in the earth. And this would be a meaning of the opposite of the book of life. You don't want to have your names written in the earth. To have your names written in the dirt means it's there one moment, but it's gone the next. As soon as the wind carries the dust away, or as soon as someone tramples on that dirt with their footprint, your name is wiped out and gone. But if your name, beloved, is written in the Lamb's book of life, it is eternal and you are saved, and you will go to heaven and be with Christ forever and ever. Those who accept Christ, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and those who reject Christ, their names are written in dirt. Is your name written in dirt today? When you die, will your name vanish away in every memory of you? Or when you die, will you be in the book of life because you have embraced Christ? You've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, and you will spend eternity with him. In which book is your name written, friend? We don't know what Jesus is writing here, but what we do know is that if you do reject Christ, you will go to hell. And if you accept Christ, you will go to heaven. If you reject Christ, there's just a temporary fleeting memory that will be here today and gone the next. And next we see verse 7 as he's writing in the dirt or on the earth. Verse 7 tells us this. It's almost like the height of their frustration. They, as they continue to ask him, this would be an over and over and over again. He's writing in the dirt. Is he not listening to what we're saying? Jesus, we have this woman. She's calling adultery. What are you going to do? The law says to stone her. What do you say, Jesus, over and over again while he writes in the dirt? This had to drive them crazy. And then he stood up. He stood up and said to them these simple words, because the question for his disciples who were standing there, they had to be asking, how is Jesus going to get out of this? They certainly know the dilemma. And we might ask, how is he going to diffuse this? Here he does it with a few simple words. He is the master. His words are simple. They appear to be very gentle in the context. Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
I can visualize a mic drop here, can't you? Or, or if this was a tweet or something, a hashtag boom, because he just brought it. He, he didn't argue with them. He didn't debate them. He didn't argue the law. He just said, whichever one of you that doesn't have sin, you be the one to judge her. What an amazing way to diffuse what great humility and gentleness. He diffused the situation. He removed the dilemma. And I'm so thankful that our Lord is cool as a cucumber under pressure. Because that means that when you're, when you're in a situation where you're stressed out and you're not being as cool as a cucumber. Because I'll bet this woman was terrified out of her mind being in this situation. And that should give you hope that when you're in a situation that's beyond your control, you can go to a Lord and Savior that is calm and cool under pressure. He is never shaken or rattled. He is never caught by surprise. And that's our Jesus. He is the one that we should turn to first when things don't make sense in our lives. Amen? Amen. And it's easy to say, but oftentimes we go through troubled times trying to fix them on our own. And it's not until we realize we can't fix them on our own, we've made things worse, then we go to Jesus. And I think to myself often, Charlie, why won't you learn just to go to Jesus first? And it's all going to work out. Jesus told these men in John chapter 5 that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully is an adulterer. He called them all adulterers. So here's the situation. We have a group of sinners who find a sinner sinning. And whether it was a setup or what happens, we don't have all the detail. But the group of sinners grab the sinner who was sinning, and they bring the sinner sinning back to Jesus. And the sinners say, she should be judged. And I want to sit there and go, that's your plan? You're going to take a group of sinners who catch a sinner sinning and bring them back to the sinless one. Jesus is the cosmic judge. He judges the universe. He is the judges of all things. And you're going to stand before him as a sinner and try to accuse a sinner? That's not going to work out. Jesus speaks so much about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Hypocrisy in one definition is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. In other words, hypocrisy is, is that an, an, an imperfect person is pointing to another person who is imperfect because that person is imperfect. That's what the religious leaders were doing. They were imperfect people pointing to an imperfect woman. They brought her before Jesus because she was imperfect and said, punish her. Jesus has much to say about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. In Matthew 7, 3 through 5, he, he writes this, or he says this, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or have you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus had no fear of man. He spoke truth. He is God in the flesh. He, he spoke to the scribes and Pharisees what they needed to hear. He called them over and over hypocrites in front of everyone. It drove them crazy. In Matthew 7, 13 through 15, we, we see he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 23 was not a good verse for the chapter for the scribes and Pharisees. Because it continues in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and unclean. Jesus went after the hypocrites to show their hypocrisy. Are you getting the picture? There are dozens of verses where Jesus went after the scribes and the Pharisees who were hypocrites. The Pharisees loved to judge people who who looked different than they did. The Pharisees loved to judge people who thought differently than they thought. The Pharisees wanted to judge this woman because her sin was different than their sin. And friends, you and I can have the same temptation, can't we? I know I can. Where I could be very tempted to judge someone who looks differently than I look. I could be very tempted to judge someone who who behaves differently than I behave or even who has sin that's different than my sin. And the Bible says when we do that, we're hypocrites. And we are not as sinners to judge other people's sin. James 4, 11 through 12 tells us this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law or judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 2, 1 through 2 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that judgment of God falls, rightly falls, on those who practice such thing. Our flesh, the devil, and the world want all of us to judge people all the time. The world wants everyone to be judged. That's what the cancer culture is all about. But believers are not to judge one another. Because there's only one judge, and that is Jesus himself. My wife is the brains in our family. I'm the muscle. I tell her that all the time. But she taught me years ago that sin will make us assume the best in ourselves and the worst in others. Let me read that again, because I could be very guilty of this myself. That sin will make us assume the best in ourselves and the worst in others all the time. And we have to remind ourselves of that and resist the temptation to think the worst of others. Sin makes us do that. Verse 9 says, but when they heard it, They went out away one by one, beginning with the older ones. There's uh, other commentators have speculated here, why is this happening? Uh, I think the best answer is during the custom of the day, the younger ones would defer to the older men. And so now we see the older men are, are one by one examining the statement of Christ, looking in their soul, and they know that they are sinners. They know they are not qualified to throw a stone at that woman because they have sinned. So as they walk away, the younger men follow them. The older men are also wise enough to know what Jesus is saying, that they too are wrong. And and then look at this. This is absolutely amazing. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Friends, if you're going to be alone with one person, you want to be alone with Jesus. And there's going to be times in your life where you think, I'm all alone. I've got nobody for me. I've got no one around me to encourage me. I've got no one to strengthen me. And you're going to go through difficult seasons by design where God will put you alone to show you you have Christ with you and Christ is all you need. 
And sometimes your season will last as long as it takes for you to realize all I need is Jesus. But Jesus is right here with this woman because all she needs is Jesus. They're standing alone together. The accusers are gone, which is Jesus' kind words. He diffused it. They walked away. What an amazing picture from chaos and commotion to this calmness. And if there's one person who can bring calmness to your chaos, it's Jesus. And when you're in that season of chaos and confusion, you need to seek Jesus and pray to the Prince of Peace that he will give you peace in your situation. Because he just brought this woman incredible peace instantly. She didn't have to wait days or weeks or months. While the men are standing there accusing her, Jesus said one word or just one sentence, one phrase of words. And now she's right where she wants to be, all alone with Jesus. So notice here, first Jesus stood up to the religious bullies. He addressed them. And now Jesus is going to lift himself up to a broken woman who was close to death. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, this would show us that he was bent down writing in the dirt the entire time these older men were walking away. He could have had their back to them, and now he stands up and turns and says, what happened? Even though he, he knows what happened. Woman, where are they? The word woman here is a term of endearment. It's a sign of respect in the ancient world. He is showing her dignity. He's showing her value. He's showing her respect, kindness, and mercy. The very thing that the accusers lacked. And now he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Has no one judged you? Has no one thrown a rock at you? Was there not one of them who was without sin? No one has condemned, no one was there to condemn you. And she says in verse 11, no one, Lord, no one. Of all those men who dragged her in and humiliated her, there wasn't one who didn't have sin. Not one of them could be my judge. Not one could condemn her. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus is the only one who has the right to judge someone. He is the one without sin. John 3.17 states, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That was his first visit. But on his second visit, he will judge the world. But his first visit, he came to save sinners. And then he tells her, go, and from now on, sin no more. There's this implication here. It implies as if he forgave her sins. As if he's giving her a fresh start, a clean slate, and only Jesus can forgive her sins. And now we, we wrap up with our application. I just want to give you three quick things to think about or points to ponder. Number one is this. And I love this point. Jesus calls sinners. Jesus calls sinners. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, we read this. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There are some who think that they don't need a sinner, not need a savior because they're not sinning. There are some who say they have no sin. Is that you today? Or are you willing to acknowledge that you are a sinner? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Have you come to Christ? Have you come to Christ yet in your life? Or is today the day of salvation? That you would surrender your life to Christ and come to Him once and for all as your Savior. Are you willing to admit today, I am a sinner? 
I've done some bad things. I am unrighteous because the Bible says you have. What's fascinating here, this woman was not, she was pardoned. She was not acquitted of her, 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 her wrongdoing. Jesus did not declare her not guilty. She was guilty and Jesus knew it. In order for her to be guilty and forgiven, we know that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Someone's going to have to take her penalty. Someone's going to have to die in her place because her punishment is death. So who will that person be? None other than Jesus himself. When Jesus forgave her sins and forgave other people's sins, he was not saying that you're not guilty. He was saying there's going to come a time where I'm going to take your penalty upon myself. And it's about six months after this event, Jesus will go to the cross and he will take her punishment for her adultery upon himself and her sins will be forgiven and his righteousness will be applied to her account. That's the gospel message. Do you believe that today, friends? That your punishment has been applied to Jesus at the cross and his righteousness has been applied to your account. And when the father looks at you, he doesn't look at you as a sinful, wicked sinner. He looks at you as his righteous son. And he loves you. And he can't wait to be with you for eternity. You are his forever and ever. Number two is this, that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. And I would love to be there for any scene where Jesus does that. Because I'm imagining the disciples being like, Jesus, you need to tone it down. They were probably scared of the way he spoke truth to them. But Jesus speaks truth. And he hits them head on because they had to hear it. The Pharisees were too proud to acknowledge that they were sinners. They were too proud to say they needed Jesus as their Savior. They wore their fancy clothes and fancy hats. They cared more about the opinion of man than the opinion of God. And time and time again, they would hear Jesus teach with great authority. They would watch him raise people from the dead and heal the blind. Fantastic miracles. And yet they denied Jesus Christ. Their hearts were hardened towards him. And their sin was worse than the woman's sin. Their sin was to reject Christ as Savior. That is the one unforgivable sin. All the other sins are forgivable. But when you reject Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no one to save you from that sin because Jesus is the only Savior. But her sin was forgivable because she put her trust in Jesus. Sharing the gospel with others, I, from time to time, people will say to me, you know, you're judging me. But friends, we're not judging anyone when we share the gospel. We're warning them. There's a difference. And I shared this to our Wednesday night class that when someone tells me, you're judging me. Don't tell me I'm a sinner and I need to repent. I say, I'm not judging you. But you're going to wish I was your judge because I can't send you to hell. Your judge is greater. The greatest of all judges is Jesus himself. And when we go share the gospel, we're not judging anyone. We're warning them that if they don't turn and repent, they will burn in hell forever and ever. And we don't want them to do that. The greatest love we could show anyone is to warn them of the consequences of their sin and show them there's a way out. And Jesus is the only way out. Number three and finally is this, is that Jesus gives this woman a fresh start. If you're here today, even if you're a believer and you, you've messed up and you've made some poor choices, or maybe you're not saved, you never come to Christ and you want a fresh start, it's a matter of confessing your sin before the Lord. Repenting of whatever your sin is. In golf, it's called a mulligan. I take a mulligan every hole. I don't think that's the rule, but that's how I play. But it's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. And when Jesus forgives your sins, you, you have a fresh start. And maybe there's someone here today or watching online and you're thinking, I've messed up. 
I just want to have a whole new beginning, a whole new start with my life. I want to live for Jesus. I want to commit myself to him. Today is the day the Lord will give you a fresh start if you'll surrender to him. And as people who are forgiven, we are to forgive other people. And that's something that we have to be reminded of, that forgiven people forgive people. And if you've been forgiven all of your sins by the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, as it's been applied to your account by the Holy Spirit, then shame on us to hold offenses of other people against them. That we are called to forgive others just as we have been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this text that we had this morning to walk through. Thank you that Jesus is the judge, and not only is he the judge, but he's also the one who stepped in our place. We are guilty of sin, and Jesus took our guilt upon himself. He died on the cross in our place. The punishment that we deserve was poured out on him. He was buried and dead for three days. He rose victoriously. He conquered death, Satan, and sin. And thank you that our salvation is simply based on believing the truth of this glorious gospel. Father, strengthen all of our faith today. That no matter how we came in this, this building today or how we began watching online, whatever we would, we would leave here today with, our faith would be stronger. That we would resist the temptation to assume the worst in others. Resist the temptation to judge others. But Father, we would be pro- faithful to proclaim the gospel as you have commanded us to do. Help us to be loving and caring and encourage one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.